I am Suta Kavari, and welcome to this week's episode of A Look at the Issues, a policy podcast based formally at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. I say formally because I am currently recording this segment in the comfort of my tiny closet. Uh, We're living through incredibly strange times, but I do hope that you're all staying safe and sane and washing your hands. In the coming days, we are going to be working on a special episode focused on how to stay sane in an age of coronavirus. It'll be an episode about inspiring stories from you about the things that bring you joy during this truly strange time. So please send us any voice clips or voice notes about how you have been adjusting to your life of isolation and what has been bringing you joy during this time. You can send those voice notes to studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk or tag us on Instagram. We are on at bsg underscore a look at the issues or find us on Facebook at a look at the issue. Now this week's episode of a look at the issues has very little to say about coronavirus. That's mostly because it was recorded a little over two weeks ago before it began this massive global pandemic currently gripping the world. On this episode, we speak to Kate O'Regan, currently the director of the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights and a former justice of the South African Constitutional Court. On this episode, Kate reflects back on a monumental time in South African history and her role in designing a new constitutional democracy. She also talks about the need to safeguard human rights and talks about the role that music and art and popular culture plays in inspiring people. This is what she had to say. The possibility of change always remains. I always remain optimistic about the possibility of change and the importance of ordinary people engaging in, um, you know, what are often acts of heroism against very uh, oppressive states. And we saw that in South Africa. We saw that in Namibia. We're seeing that now in Hong Kong. We're seeing it in India with the movement against the Citizenship Amendment Act. You know, we're seeing this process of ordinary people standing up for principles of freedom, standing up for principles of human rights against pretty repressive countries across the globe. And I I carry with me that sort of seed of the sense of the possibility of change that I think I carry still from those South African years of apartheid. On this episode of A Look at the Issues, we're absolutely thrilled and very excited to have Justice Kate O'Regan, director here at the Bonavaro Human Rights Institutes, talking to us about, wow, a lot of things. I don't even know where to start. I have a whole list. Uh, I, was, I, must, I must admit, I was, I've been a massive fan of, of Kate Regan for the longest time, since my parents wanted me to be a lawyer, and they're quite disappointed that I did not become one. But uh, Justice Regan, welcome to a look at the issues. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Suta. Um, so thinking yesterday, Sunday, the 7th of March, was International Women's Day. Um, and thinking about International Women's Day, also sort of tracking how the gender question has been addressed and gender equality has been addressed in South Africa. Perhaps if we can start at pre-1994, during the transitional period, um, during your work, uh, working for the uh, National Women's Coalition, how important was it to ensure that gender equality was put on the transitional agenda? Uh, I think it was very important. And I think that a whole range of organizations realized that it was important around the same time. Um, I think it's really the liberation movements, particularly the African National Congress, had been debating issues around gender equality uh, for a long time, of course, but particularly when they began to think about the possibility of a new constitutional framework, issues of gender became very important. At the same time, there were organizations within the country, the Rural Women's Coalition, the Black Sash, a whole range of organizations who realized that 
gender equality was an important issue to put on um, on the debate uh, in relation to the drafting of the new constitution. And that's really what led to the National Women's Coalition. It was a very wide-ranging group of women's organizations right across the political spectrum, spectrum that um, began to think about, well, what would we want in a new constitutional framework in, that would speak to the experience of women and would um, take the project of gender equality seriously. And how do we see, how do we see that playing out over the last 25 years? In well, I think there are, the Constitution is uh, full of um, a, a re- recognition of the importance of gender equality um, from its a strong equality clause from right up front in Section 1, the um, fundamental values, the foundational values of the Constitution, which talks about a non-racial and non-sexist society, right up there in Section 1, um, through uh, the use of a judicious use of he or she's at places in the Constitution, which made it plain that the president could be he or she's, judges could be he's or she. In relation to judges in particular, the explicit statement that in appointing judges, um, attention should be given to um, the uh, seeking to ensure that the judiciary uh, is broadly reflective of the gender and racial demographics of South Africa. So you see that throughout the constitution, perhaps most, most importantly, however, or very importantly, at least, is the recognition that to the extent that culture, tradition, and religion are recognized as are the possibility of private schools. All of those uh, recognitions are subject to compliance with the Constitution. So there is, in a sense, um, a very clear provision in the Constitution that gender equality cannot become um, uh, trumped by um, either religion or culture or tradition, um, and that Gender equality, therefore, is, is is given a very strong status within the Constitution. And I guess, and also during, at the start of the first bench of the Constitutional Court, which you were one of the uh, first judges, being the youngest, one of only two women on the bench, um, and then obviously operating this predominantly male-dominated, white male-dominated world, um, trying to build on a legitimate institution um, in a space where justice was compromised for so many people. Uh, how is that task? So, of course, it had many layers to it. I I think the first thing to note is that first bench, even though now, if one looks at it from a point of view of diversity, it doesn't seem particularly diverse. There are 11 members um, of the bench, and in that first um, court, there were seven white judges and four black judges in a country which at the time would have been probably around 10 or 12% white. Um, It's less now. Uh, that was clearly not uh, in any way directly reflective of the demographics. And there were two women out of 11 and ditto. Nevertheless, given where South Africa had come from, this was a remarkably diverse court because in 1994, of the approximately 150 judges, 147 would have been white men. Uh, so we were already a very different court. And of course, um, of everybody on the court, I think, was there because they had a track record of commitment to human rights, commitment to a transformed society, and by and large, not only on uh, issues relating to race, but also relating to gender. So in terms of the um, the values and um, views of the court, I think it was self 
uh, evidently a court that was was you know concerned about transformation on gender grounds as well as on race issues. So it's 1994. You get a call from arguably the most inspiring South African, Nelson Mandela. Congratulations, has just been appointed a constitutional court judge, the youngest, and again, one of the two women. What goes to your mind? I mean, what went to your mind at the time, and how, how did you take on that response? Well, it was, it was odd, because I was actually in Canada um, attending, because I was attending a conference, and I heard indirectly, actually, it was announced on the national news uh, that evening, and and of course that was eight o'clock in South Africa, which was I suppose around about two o'clock in the afternoon in Canada. And various people tried to get hold of me to tell me, um, and you know when I heard, I actually was horrified. I, I mean, sort of I suppose horrified, stroke terrified. Um, you know, we, we, I had been willing to put my name into the um, kind of list of candidates for the position because I really thought it was very unlikely that I would be appointed, and because. Um, it seemed important to have some women in the mix, and um, so I didn't expect to be appointed. Uh, the possibility of being appointed had indeed become greater once I had seen it. It was a kind of process of winning down the candidates. There were about 25 of us interviewed, of whom I think about six or seven were women. But then when um, the list, the Judicial Service Commission announced the list of 10 from which President Mandela would select, there were two of us on the list of 10 and six people had to be selected off that. And I then thought, well, it is possible they'll only have one woman in the last mix, but it, it is also possible that there will be two. That surprised me a lot. Um, so I was I was quite um, horrified. And, um, you know, we, my husband and I lived in Cape Town. We had two small children, very small. And, you know, this all seemed um, uh, sort of somewhat... Uh, Worrying and terrifying in prospect <laughs> when it actually happens. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and and so the design of the constitutional court. I mean, the building itself speaks a lot to trying to redress all those injustices of the past. And so being in that very inspiring place about designing this building that would be open to all South Africans, and then also being very intentional about interpreting the constitution to ensure that South Africa doesn't go back to that dark place. What, what role do you think the court played during that transitional period and also continues to play now in, in safeguarding human rights in South Africa? Well, of course, the genesis of the court itself lay in the negotiation between the liberation movements and the apartheid government um, in relation to the new constitution because there was a dispute between them as to whether the negotiations that they were having before the first democratic elections were going to produce a, a final constitution or just a transitional one. And the um, liberation movements were very convinced that it would not be appropriate to let these negotiations produce the final constitution. They should be, that constitution should be drafted by a democratically elected constitutional assembly. Um, but the uh, National Party government was very keen that they would be able to get as, you know, while they still, as it were, had political power, be able to um, have a lot more say in what the constitution would look like. And that impasse was resolved by agreeing that in that transitional period, there would be a series of principles that would be agreed between the liberation movements and the National Party government as to principles with which the final constitution, which would be drafted by a democratically elected constitutional assembly would comply. And then the question was, well, who's going to decide if it does comply once we've got this draft from the 
Constitutional Assembly. And that is where the idea of creating a constitutional court came. So I say all of that because the constitutional court actually became a key part of the constitution-making process, which at the time was certainly unusual um, in this two-phase process of constitution-making. But it did mean that it um, gave the court a kind of a sense of engagement with the project, um, which I think was very important. And one of the very first things in, in 1996, the court was established, opened its doors effectively in February 1995. And in the middle of 1996, when the Constitutional Assembly had finished drafting the the what was to be the final constitution, um, that was then referred to the Constitutional Court. And we held several weeks of hearings with all sorts of people from all sorts of different walks of life in South Africa, arguing as to whether the text that had been produced by the Constitutional Assembly did in fact comply with those 34 principles or not. Um, so that was, I think, a very important part of um, both building the court's actual expertise and familiarity with the text, but also a very important part of building the sense of the institution as an institution that was central to the constitutional project in South Africa. And and it's been and it's been I mean we've seen remarkable cases where which obviously also test that doctrine of the separation of power and where the constitutional court has really sort of like take not I wouldn't say taking the government to, to task, but has ensured that access to, for example, antiretrovirals, um during the Mbeki years, access to housing, those were the key human rights issues were fully and adequately addressed. How, how, and how did you, how, how do you, how does a court, um, I mean, the constitutional court based on your experience, but how does a court really navigate those tensions between uh, the, in the doctrine of separation of powers? Because it's not clear cut. Well, I think the first thing that was unarguable in South Africa was that the court had this power. Now, there may be some people who argue that you should never give the courts those powers. <laughs> but from the point of view of the judges in South Africa, that was a position we could not take. Section 2 of the Constitution and Section 172 of the Constitution say explicitly the court must declare any conduct or law that is inconsistent with the Constitution invalid, must declare it invalid. Must. There is no room for shirking this duty. And... So I think that was that is there is there was no room for doubt about the role that the court was being given, and I think it's important to recognise that. In a, there's the first question is what is the proper role of the court on the on the constitution, and I don't think there's any room for doubt about that. The second question is the more delicate question, which is, well, what are the tests for determining whether something is inconsistent with the constitution? And what is the level of scrutiny and how should courts work with that? And I think that, again, the text is very good in that it makes it clear that at least in relation to all the rights in the Bill of Rights, they are not absolute rights. All of them are subjected to a limitations clause, which allows the government to argue that a limitation of rights is justifiable in a free, open, democratic society so it's not simply a case of any limitation of the rights will constitute an invalid law. A piece of law that causes a limitation of the rights is invalid. It opens the door to government coming along and saying, well, actually, we think that in these circumstances, this is a justifiable infringement. And that changes the character of what the court's doing to being 
giving government, as it were, an audience to explain, and also gives government an opportunity when it feels that it needs to enact legislation that limits rights, to reflect on whether their reasons really are strong enough and are likely to stand up, as it were, in the forum of reason that is what the court constitutes. And in terms of safeguarding human rights, um, I remember in 2000 and, was in 2009, you were heavily criticized for what is it, overstepping the mark of sort of like a sitting judge by criticizing the government's refusal to grant the Dalai Lama a visa for conferences that Archbishop Desmond Tutu was holding. Um, and again, and I, I, again, I guess your reasoning was around this sets a very terrible president. How, how do you make a call? I think that's, I mean, you've asked, I think, the most difficult question, which is that once you are appointed a judge of the Constitutional Court, there is no doubt that your voice is amplified by your office. People report what you say, not because it's amazingly cogent or brilliantly insightful, but because you are unavoidably clothed with the power of being a Constitutional Court judge. And this is a very powerful role. And I have to say that by and large, I have um, sought to be very cautious about exercising, using that voice in ways that are inappropriate. What happened on that particular occasion is that I was on a platform with uh, Minister Barbara Hogan, who had the day before um, spoken out about this and had been subjected to a very vigorous pushback, um, um, both within the press by colleagues of hers within the African National Congress and more broadly. And sitting next to her on their platform that morning, I felt having known Barbara and having known of her extraordinary history in the struggle, she spent 10 years in jail uh, for the work that she, do, she did in uh, relation to unemployed workers and for being a member of the African National Congress in the 1980s. I felt a kind of a sisterly need to say, actually, that I quite, and it is what I said, I quite understood why she had criticized government in relation to this. And i you know, wanted to express my support for her. Um, I'm not sure that I would have done it in any other circumstances, but not to have done so on that day for somebody who had been such a kind of brave um, uh, and outspoken opponent of apartheid and who I think had conducted her public life with great integrity in the in the 20, 20 years um, or 15 years at that stage since... Um, since the democratic South Africa, I just felt I could not remain silent. And you haven't remained silent since. No, I mean once yeah. I left. I mean the, once you left the court. Once <laughs> I left the court, I think to some extent the to some extent the um, um, calculation changes. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I I think it is important. So it's not only about your voice being amplified, but it's also about recognizing that as a judge, you need to exercise and role model that ability for thoughtful engagement with complex issues upon which we can reasonably disagree, because that's really what you expect judges to do. That's what impartiality is. Impartiality is not being some, you know, neutral figure that is completely um, uh, outside of our social um, and political existence. It is, it is recognizing that you need to be able to listen strongly to views with which you disagree, to understand the baggage which you bring to any particular issue, and then to role model that so people recognize that 
that actually you will listen to them. And so I have tried to remain consistent to that, but there are times I think um, there are issues upon which our constitution is absolutely clear, um, gender equality being one, the need to transform our society to address the the deeply racist and appalling legacies of apartheid, upon which I think there is no constitutional doubt whatsoever. So on those things, I think one should speak clearly. I mean, looking back at your career, um, not a lot of people can say that they were at the center of one of the most historical moments in the birth of a new democracy and the nation building. What are some of the highlights, I mean, from that part, in the build-up to the advent of democracy right afterwards on your time on the bench? Well, you know, of course, having the opportunity to serve on the bench was a huge privilege. Um, And working both with an extraordinary array of South Africans in my 15 years on the bench, I felt enormously honored. I also think that one of the the highlights of being on the court was seeing the power of institutional equality at work. Because I often say that on any measure of seniority, um, I was going to be at the bottom on the court. But the bottom line about the court was that firstly, we decided not to have a system of seniority. Only the Chief Justice and the Deputy Chief Justice had positions of kind of seniority which flowed from their appointment to those roles. But everybody, all the other judges were were treated as equal, which was very unusual for a senior court. But the equality really flows from the fact that our court, like most in uh, the Commonwealth, permit people to issue their own decisions, their own judgments, whether dissenting or concurring. And that means that everybody is equal to the extent they have their own voice on the court. And nobody's voice is louder than anybody else's voice. Your voice is as loud as your reasons. And I think that was an enormous privilege. Uh, I think it was, it made for, we were fortunate that we had in the early years we were not overly burdened, which we'd all expected to be, but we were really able to spend a lot of time debating all sorts of nuances of the jurisprudence um, and to do so in a way which was very engaged. Um, and I think we all learned an enormous amount from one another um, and which which felt, in a sense, like a real, you know, collegium of equals. And so moving from the Constitutional Court where you spent 12 years? 15. 15 years on safeguarding the Constitution and the very extensive Bill of Rights. Coming here to Oxford to set up the Bonavar Institute of Human Rights. In, in taking up this position here, what was, what was part of the, the motivation and the reasoning? Um, so it's the Bonavera Institute. Bonavera, sorry. Yes, no problem. Um, so... I had done quite a lot of things in the seven years um, between coming here and finishing at the court, including sitting in your own country, in Namibia, as an um, ad hoc judge of the Supreme Court, which you know was a huge honor, which I enjoyed very much, um, and sitting on various international tribunals, and I'd done a commission of inquiry, and I had done uh, a lot of work with NGOs and organizations in the broad field of the rule of law and human rights. But when I was approached to think about putting my name in the hat here, it was a competitive selection process, um, you know, it it seemed like an opportunity to have one clear job again in a university setting working with young people. And that was very appealing to me because I had, um, you know, I had done lots of bits and pieces, but it was very appealing and also new institutions are very appealing, having had the good fortune of being 
um, there at the start of the Constitutional Court and having worked with a range of other new institutions over the course of my life, I thought that was very appealing. And one of the extraordinary things about Oxford, which you will know, is that the graduate student community here draws an extraordinary array of people from all over the world, particularly from the developing world and the global south. And it seemed a, a good opportunity to be able to work with a very um, extraordinary array of, of young people. Of course, between accepting the position and actually arriving in Oxford, um, I accepted the position in May 2016 and arrived in Oxford in October 2016. The world um, went through, uh, um, appeared a to be going through a, somewhat of a change. And I realized... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But the kind of the project of the rule of law, the project of democracy, the project of human rights um, globally suddenly seemed to be wobbling in a way perhaps that it hadn't in the 25 years previous to that, where certainly with the fall of the Berlin Wall, there had been an extraordinary growth in the number of countries which uh, had adopted democratic constitutions, committed to the rule of law and human rights, and suddenly there seemed to be a kind of real global project of pushback to that. So uh, it has been a very interesting time to be here and in um, a wonderful opportunity to work again with an extraordinary array of people. It's slightly complicated living my life halfway between Cape Town and Oxford, but um, it has been it, you know, it has been a you know both a privilege and a, and a wonderful opportunity. Is it different being a human rights practitioner now? Uh, say looking back at your very extensive career being a human rights practitioner now compared to 20 years ago or 30 years ago? I think one of the things that that I feel in a kind of way I've been blessed by is that having sort of started work in that kind of this broad area, working particularly in relation to kind of trade unions and also on land issues um, in South Africa in the 1980s, when things seemed pretty dire... Um, the state was powerful, repressive. People, you know, were being detained. There was, as we as we now know, kind of state violence against its opponents. Um, it was a, a pretty gloomy period, the 1980s. And yet, we saw that extraordinary change in South Africa. We saw the extraordinary change in Namibia. Um, the possibility of change always remains. I always remain optimistic about the possibility of change and the importance of ordinary people engaging in, um, you know, what are often acts of heroism against very uh, oppressive states. And we saw that in South Africa. We saw that in Namibia. We're seeing that now in Hong Kong. We're seeing it in India with the movement against the Citizenship Amendment Act. You, you know, we're seeing this process of ordinary people standing up for principles of freedom, standing up for principles of human rights against pretty repressive countries across the globe. And I I carry with me that sort of seed of the sense of the possibility of change that I think I carry still from those South African years of apartheid. Perhaps in, in way of closing, if there was a young graduate listening to this, you know, aspiring to be the next Keter Regan, Pius Langa, what, what advice would you give them? Well, I suppose my first piece of advice would be the work that is done on the ground in ordinary communities is probably the most important work that is done. Uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to be a constitutional court judge. I enormously 
I was honored by it. I benefited. It was intellectually stimulating and inspiring. But I have no illusions that actually we change our societies mostly from the work that's done on the ground. And one of the problems, I think, about social media and sometimes about strategic litigation is we think we can leap over the hard work of organizing, of um, working with ordinary people in ordinary communities, whether it's civic organizations, trade union organizations, women's organizations. That's the hard work which no democracy can do without. And what inspires hope for you? Young people, I think, and that's why it's wonderful to work with such wonderful young people. People generally, I, I am always amazed at the courage, the values, the generosity and kindness of ordinary people in all walks of life. And I think that it's easy to become quite cynical about the world and power, and there's a lot about power which is deeply worrying, but I don't think, I think we need to remind ourselves um, all the time of the, how many extraordinary people there are out there trying to make the world uh, habitable for all of us and fair to all of us. And that remains an inspiration for me. Amazing. Uh, before I end, my, my editor would be very hard pressed if I didn't ask you this question. Um, and her question was, you know, pop culture has completely democratized how cultures and societies evolve. And to what extent, um, <laughs> and to what extent does sort of pop culture help you understand society? And how engaged are you with what's happening? So, I mean, I suppose, I suppose the question is, is and I now feel very old, <laughs> as to what you mean by pop culture. I mean, do you mean music? Do you mean, um, what do you mean by pop culture? Popular, sort of music. Music. Music, um, the internet. Um, yeah. and all well, I suppose, again, you know, and again, this, sounds, this will sound uh, very old, but there's, there's no doubt that music was an enormous part of resistance to apartheid, both um, kind of popular music, um, kind of rock, folk music, the lyrics of that, but also um, kind of traditional freedom songs. You know, I have no doubt that music is an enormously powerful way of building a sense of kind of solidarity in difficult times. And I think that's that's true today as then. But I also believe very strongly in the importance of, of art, in the importance of theatre. I often think that the ideas of human rights, the ideas of a free society, the ideas of solidarity and resistance are better communicated actually through culture than they are through intellectual ideas. They, they resonate, they tell stories, they inspire, um, and they build a, a, a commitment to a, a better world. So I, I believe culture, including pop culture, <laughs> is good at that. Kate, thank you so much for having Great us. Great pleasure. Thank you, Suta. And that's all we've got for you on this week's episode of A Look at the Issues. Please send us your voice clips and voice notes about how you've been adjusting to life in isolation and social distancing and what has been inspiring about this time and what has brought you joy during this truly strange time. You can send those voice clips through 
to us. We are on studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk. A look at the issues is researched and edited by Jasmina Bidet and Chavika Mizra. It is produced by Alan Tipping and coordinated by Desma Natome and Anthony Liveris. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram at a look at the issues or email us on studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk. And that's it. Until next week, I am Sutakavari, and do take care and wash your hands.